Hello boys and girls ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gurg show this is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on the show is to invite the world class experts to extract the practices routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life This episode is brought to you by Friday newsletter. Every Friday I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers which mentions what I am learning, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading and much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website https://nishangarg.me and i s h a n t g a r g.me and today's guest is Dr. Diane Hasper. Dr. Diane is a highly accomplished and successful licensed psychologist, hypnotherapist and trauma specialist. For over 25 years, she has been creating self-hypnosis recordings for thousands of busy people to help them heal their bodies and minds so that they can sleep and reach their potential in their relationships, their work and in their physical and mental health. Before building her full private practice, she worked for 20 years in a holistic medical office using mind-body spirit interventions. She also taught hypnosis for sleep to treat pain, anxiety, depression, digestive and immune issues and more at UCLA, USC and the Southern California Society for Clinical Hypnosis. She is also a VIP contributor to www.thriveglobal.com and in this episode Dr. Diane discusses how to improve the quality of sleep through hypnosis, self-hypnosis and it's myth and much much more she also guides us through a hypnosis demo without further ado please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with dr diane dr diane welcome to the show it is such a pleasure to be here nishant i appreciate you for giving me and us your time i really appreciate that so i thought if we start with your sleep routines how many hours do you sleep oh that's a great question nobody ever asks me that i probably sleep uh, about 7 and a half hours a night i would say yeah 7 and a half to 8 eight hours how do you manage Eight hours of sleep in your busy schedule. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I I I used to have really terrible sleep, and I remember even as a child having terrible sleep and struggling with it and being fatigued. And it was really a priority to me. I can't say I really ever expected to sleep seven and a half to eight or seven to eight hours a night, but I have been doing self hypnosis. 25 years and I I actually usually do it during the day sometimes I do some of it also at night but I find that that makes all the difference in the world and the quality and the quantity of my sleep has dramatically improved so I am pretty consistent with it for the last 25 years I'm doing it every day because it makes that much of a difference for me we'll come to self hypnosis in a while You mentioned about childhood. Would you mind speaking about what happened in your childhood that impacted your sleep? Yeah, that you know, I don't remember actually ever sleeping well. And I remember things from pretty young. I mean, my my mother tells me that I was sort of uncomfortable 
even as like a, a really small infant and couldn't quite get comfortable. I have fibromyalgia, which I've had my entire life. So I suspect that may have had something to do with it. The fact that I always had chronic pain and that chronic pain used to be much, much worse actually also before I started self-hypnosis. So I remember being about three years old and having disturbed sleep, like waking up in the middle of the night or having insomnia. And I remember being six, seven years old and just laying awake in the dark or waking up in the middle of the night and you know, going out into the hallway, looking at my cat's glowing eyes <laughs> in the <laughs> night and wishing I could go back to sleep, but really struggling with that. So, and that became a really serious chronic problem because I had a lot of chronic infections and immune issues and health issues and pain issues as I got older and, and really struggled with that and tried everything and nothing really worked for me until suddenly you know, the self-hypnosis did. And, and that's part of why I've, I've gone into this field and really am passionate about working with people with sleep issues and trying to help them transform it. I think it's so foundational to everything else. Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Chicago and Los Angeles. So I was born in Chicago. And then when I was eight, I actually moved to Los Angeles with my mother. My father was still in Chicago. So I actually commuted every month during my childhood between Los Angeles and Chicago, because I'm, I'm very close to, to my family, to both my father and my mother. And so I kind of grew up in both places, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> There are a lot of factors that might affect sleep, including environmental and psychological behaviors. What do you think are the main factors impacting our sleep nowadays? And I can speak for myself. Sometimes, most of the time, I sleep really well. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I cannot go back to sleep. So I would love to ask you what factors contribute to not having a good sleep in our new modern life. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of factors and some of those are biological and hormonal. Some of those are physical, you know, like pain can, you know, chronic or acute pain can really interfere with sleep. And then some of those are sort of social in terms of obviously things like looking at devices and the blue light can interfere with melatonin. So that's something, but then also other things in terms of watching the news or getting, you know, upsetting news late in the night, right before sleep, that can kind of be disruptive, I think, both on a, a conscious level and that we worry, we then worry more about things, but also I think it can interfere with dream states, you know, with the unconscious and then, of course, there are other things that are really disruptive in terms of, I think, sometimes the busyness of our lives now and the expectations that we have or other people have for us. Those things, I think, add pressure that can sort of add to the spinning thoughts that happen when we get into bed. Because, of course, a lot of people are going, going, going focused on achievement, <laughs> focused on being busy, you know, the busier you are, the more successful you are, those kinds of things. And one of the reasons that I really appreciate some of your work and philosophy is your emphasis on, on mindfulness, not just as a practice, but as a way of life, you know, really focusing on what we care about and what's important to us and making space for that, I think 
actually can help us to rest and then to sleep better. Do you have any specific practice or practices before going to bed or pre-sleep routine? Yes. So I, I would say that I think of my sleep routine as beginning from the time that I get up. So for one thing, I have, I have spent a lot of time thinking about what my core values are and what's really important to me. And, and I have an awareness of my energy as something that is finite. I try to consider how I would like to use my energy and, and to use it wisely in the things that I care the most about. And so I try to structure my day that way. I'm not always successful at it. It's not so easy to do that when there are the pressures of everyday life and responsibilities but it's something that I do continuously reassess. And I find that it's really helpful periodically throughout the day to pause. And even if it's for 10 seconds, one minute to practice a little bit of, you know, mindfulness or, you know, vagal breathing, just, you know, breathing in for like a count of four and out for a count of eight, something like that which just relaxes mm -hmm. the body and sets it in a rhythm, things like that, that I do throughout the day, or honestly, little things like taking a little, a, a couple of minutes to like, you know, cuddle my cats or something like that, or look at a, a look outside. Those things I actually think really impact our sleep because they regulate our nervous system. They calm our mind. They give us a perspective. And then, of course, again, for me, the most important thing that I do every day before sometime in the afternoon before six o'clock is my self-hypnosis. I, I literally never skip it because I find that that helps just reset my system. And I think part of it is, is a, a mental, mental model for myself and for, for the people that I work with. I think it's really important to know that we deserve to take some time to rest and to be connected to ourselves without feeling obligations other than just being present with ourselves. And, and when we do that, I think that it helps us to sleep better at night. So then, you know, after six o'clock, I turn off for the most part my notifications. I don't check email almost ever. And I don't do a lot with devices or reading news or things like that in the evenings. And I try to sort of take a warm shower in the evenings to, you know, to help with the body temperature and things like that, that I think can really help. I use essential oils, those kinds of things can make Thank a big difference. Thank you for going in details. I appreciate that. I would like to read a few lines from your Instagram post, which oh. <laughs> you posted recently. You can fact check. Mountains <laughs> rise up and we can climb until we are tired and then eventually look back and see not only how far we have come, but also see other vistas. My daily self-hypnosis gives me solace. So I would love to ask you more about your self-hypnosis practice. And before that, could you explain what is self-hypnosis to our listeners? Because, and this question is important to me as well, because I'm deep in the ignorance pool of self-hypnosis. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of people don't really understand 
what hypnosis is or what self-hypnosis is. Hypnosis is a, a distinct state or trait, depending on who you talk to, and, and that's a debatable issue, but it is something that is distinct and can be measured in the brain, actually, and in some other factors that happen physiologically, right? So people tend to think of it as this kind of woo-woo, you know, out there thing that you see in movies. And, and I think it's often misunderstood. But in fact, since around 1960, the Stanford scale and the Harvard scale were established as measurement tools for hypnosis. So it's, it's actually a measurable characteristic and it's pretty stable. So somebody can test using one of those scales today and then in 25 years and objectively, the person is going to have the same or very, very similar experience of hypnosis. And that, that, those scales do things like measuring, like, you know, it might be something like telling someone that their, their arm is levitating under hypnosis and their mm-hmm. arm will actually levitate. Now, what's that sounds like sort of crazy and weird, but in fact, it feels very, very relaxing. It feels normal. So it's not like you don't know what's happening or you're out of, completely out of control of what you're doing and what you're experiencing, but it is something that is different than a normal waking state, and it is different from being asleep in the normal way that we are when we're asleep although there are some similarities in brain waves. So one way that I like to describe it to people is if you're occupied watching a movie or reading a book or watching a sporting event or dancing and you are so focused on whatever it is that you're doing that you're absorbed in it and it's like the time just passes. Like, you know, an an hour can feel like five minutes. Or it might be the opposite to that. It might be like, you know, five minutes could feel like an hour, depending. But it's it happens naturally, right? And it might be that you're, you know, you're you're having a pleasant conversation with somebody in a restaurant, and and you don't even notice all of the background noise. You're so focused on that conversation. Well, that's kind of a trance state. So it happens really naturally. What and is trance state? So, well, in hypnotic terms, when people go into a really deep trance state, there's actually a change in the brainwave. So like if, if you close your eyes and you just start meditating and relax, your brainwaves actually start to slow down. And as you relax, you start to go into an alpha state. Your brainwaves are, actually can be measured to be in an alpha state. When we are, for example, in, in a deep state of hypnosis or self-hypnosis, we actually go into a theta state. So that theta state also occurs in some of the slow wave, deeper sleep states. So that's one of the reasons why I think self-hypnosis can be really helpful for quality sleep is because it utilizes a similar brainwave. But a trance state really kind of consists of a sense of absorption, like being really absorbed in whatever experience it is you're having, and a sense of things happening kind of automatically. Sometimes there can be a quality of dissociation. So you feel like you're, you're kind of more present and less present. I think you, you probably experienced some of that when you're in maybe a deep state of meditation or mindfulness, right? Have you had mm-hmm. that experience? 
Yeah, most of the time. And sometimes meditation can be a challenging thing when the mind is racing thousand miles. Then I personally prefer guided meditation or some visualization meditation, otherwise some sort of silent meditation. Anyways, sticking to the hypnosis topic yeah. that you're explaining. So I would love to ask you, Diane, how do we practice hypnosis? So that's a great question. And so I think that that circles back to the question that you kind of asked or started to ask earlier about the difference between hypnosis and self-hypnosis. So hypnosis is some is a is a experience that's guided by a practitioner, right? So if someone comes to my office and I do a hypnotic induction, that is hypnosis. But if if I teach someone self-hypnosis, then that is really a self-guided hypnotic experience. So for example, one of the things that I have typically I typically would do in my office is I would when I see clients is I teach them self-hypnosis techniques and I usually make them recordings that they can listen to on their own so that they can achieve that in the space of their own home and their as a practice daily or nightly. And and I also have created self-hypnosis packages for sleep because I wanted to teach people um, how to use self-hypnosis on their own you know, you can download apps, but those apps are not quite the same as learning the tool of it. And I always think that people feel more empowered and are more empowered when they actually learn what something is and how they can use it, because then it's not just in that moment when they're doing it, then they can apply it in their lives, right? So like for me, for example, when I when I got trained in hypnosis initially and I started practicing self-hypnosis because I was really desperate because I had such severe, you know, sleep and other health issues. But I, I just started, I just started doing it. And I found that for me, it changed my life, not just because of the technique, but because of feeling like I was more in control of my state. And then I started to realize that how we perceive things helps create our reality. So one of the reasons that I love hypnosis is because that that's the point of it. It's like it's really about perception. Where we put our attention, how we and how we perceive things changes our physical reality and our emotional and mental reality. So I think it's it's huge to understand how to access that and how to do that for yourself. I see hypnosis as one of the healing modalities. Would you consider that? A hundred percent. I mean, I I experienced that myself, and that was that has been like the driving force in my work is to to teach people that and to help them learn how to heal themselves. And and I've seen it now, you know, with really probably thousands of people. I absolutely agree. I would love to ask you what inspired you to understand and learn hypnosis because you have had 25 years of hypnotic experience. What was your motivation? It happened kind of, you know, I mean, I was lucky, right? Because I really was suffering. I was at a point where my health issues had become debilitating. So I was, I was 26 when I got trained in hypnosis 
at that point, I had about four to seven hours a night of insomnia and really disturbed sleep. So I'd wake up about every 45 minutes to an hour. I'd be wide awake. It would take me a while to fall back to sleep. I woke up fatigued and I had very severe chronic pain and, and infections. So I would get pneumonia or chronic sinus and bronchial infections and allergies and uh, food issues and digestive issues. I had all these problems and I was really desperate. So I was in graduate school working on my PhD and I had a professor who specialized in looking at, at chronic illness and the things that put people at risk for illness and the things that protect people for, from illness. So I kind of glommed onto him and wanted to study with him. And I asked him to, to teach me about those things that protect people or put them at risk. And one of the things that did both, that either protected people from illness or put them at risk, was extremely high and extremely low hypnotizability. Now, I didn't really know that much about hypnosis at the time. But I asked him to train me. And so I was in his office and he did the Harvard scale on me. It, the Harvard scale is probably the most widely used measurement tool for hypnosis in research and since about 1960. So what it is, is an hour long script that a trained practitioner would essentially read. And, and it has things I won't give any of them away, but they are things that are very mechanical. You know, you feel totally relaxed. You hear what the, the practitioner is saying, you know, the script that they're reading, but, you know, you have your eyes closed. It's very pleasant. And, and I remember hearing what he was saying, thinking it felt normal, but he said something to the effect of it, you know, like, oh, you're, and now your arm is levitating. And my arm actually physically started levitating, started lifting up by itself. And it was <laughs> so weird that I was like, wow, this is bizarre. And I mean, it's not to say that if I hadn't been like, I'm not going to let this happen. I mean, if I had thought I'm not comfortable with this, this isn't going to happen, it wouldn't have happened. But I all, it also wasn't the same as me just normally lifting my arm up. It, it just started happening involuntarily. And then he said, you know, it's normal. And it was back to normal. And in that moment, my life really profoundly changed, Nishant, because I thought to myself, I mean, this was all happening like in real time. And I was like, wow, nothing made my arm do that. But I perceived that that was what was happening. And then that actually physically happened. And then when he told me it was normal, it was normal. And how many times in my life have I thought, well, this is the way something is. And I have no choice about that. This is my, you know, this is the way it is. And then maybe that's the way it is. Like what I started to think, like change your perception and you change your entire physical reality. And it started me thinking, now I didn't realize that when that happened, that was like 1995. I didn't realize that, that there was a lot of research already showing that I was kind of onto something that that when you use hypnosis to direct people's attention in, in certain ways, it does have a physical impact and, and that's measurable. But I didn't know quite that. I just thought, well, if that works to tell someone that their arm is doing something like levitating, why couldn't you 
tell someone that they're sleeping better? Why can't you change the perception of pain and lessen pain or lessen anxiety or lessen depression or change digestive issues, change inflammation? And so I started to, to I got trained in hypnosis and I started practicing self-hypnosis. And at the time I was working in a holistic medical practice. So I knew a lot about physiology and I was really fortunate in that I was able to start doing hypnosis with people, you know, in, in that practice and, and measure what was happening, actually see that not only did they feel better, but there were changes in, in blood tests and allergy skin tests and things like that. And so I started doing self-hypnosis knowing what I knew and my health completely turned around. From the time you started practicing hypnosis in your life, or so to speak, self-hypnosis, how much time it took for you to get back on your sleep routines and sort of fixing your other illnesses? Well, it was it was pretty quick. I mean, it was it was I mean, it was for me, it was almost miraculous because just to give you an example, so for the 10 years before getting trained in hypnosis, every year my infections were worse and I was on antibiotics for an additional month. So when I was like, when I was 16, I was on antibiotics for about a month in, in the year because I had really these severe infections. And then at 17, it was two months. For some reason, every year, no matter what I would do, it would get worse. And I mean, I tried everything. I mean, I had surgeries, I tried medications, I tried meditations. I, I couldn't, I couldn't get better. And when I, in 1995, so I got trained in December of 1995. So in 1995, I had been on antibiotics for 10 months of the year. And if I didn't go on antibiotics, I would, I would have pneumonia, I would become pneumonia. So I really had no choice. So I got trained in December and the following year I was on antibiotics for 21 days. So in other words, the year after I started doing self-hypnosis, I was on antibiotics for less time than I had been in over a decade. It was mm. dramatic. And my sleep started to improve. It started to improve right away. I mean, enough that I was motivated to continue doing it. I, I, was, I was having, you know, I remember that it was about four to seven hours of insomnia every single night prior to self-hypnosis. So I don't remember when it got down to, it's well over 20 years that it's been less than a half an hour on average, I would say. I mean, I still have some nights where maybe I have insomnia for an hour, sometimes less than that. Do you have any formal mindfulness practice along with hypnosis? Yeah, so I learned mindfulness in 2001 when I was actually doing hypnosis with fibromyalgia patients at um, UCLA in the Behavioral Medicine Clinic. And I was really fortunate in that my supervisor was Lobsang Rapgay, who um, is an expert on mindfulness and had worked with the Dalai Lama and previously and Thich Nhat Hanh. And so he is the person who actually originally taught me mindfulness. So for me, I, I haven't, I have spent time practicing um, mindfulness as a formal meditation practice, but I would say more, I use it in every, really every day in terms of how I approach things, how I think about things and sort of like in, in 
like little moments here and there. Sometimes I'll take, like I said before, 10 seconds or five minutes to practice mindfulness, you know, bringing in attention and awareness and bringing those together and labeling and some of the phases really of classical mindfulness more than modern mindfulness. I don't know. I can't remember. Do you practice more modern mindfulness or classical mindfulness? (laughs) What do do you? (laughs) What is the difference? Oh, that's a bigger topic. (laughs) (laughs) I practice formal meditation and I practice mindfulness in every moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. I sometimes also practice transcendental meditation. I I learned transcendental meditation when I was five. And then I, I kind of, I didn't, I wasn't that compelled by it. And then I went back to it about a little over a year ago and started doing it twice a day. And now I, I don't really do it twice a day. I sometimes do it once a day. I always do my self-hypnosis, but I, I like it as a technique. I like hypnosis and self-hypnosis really more, be, more in that, for me, it engages my mind, my monkey mind. And so I almost feel like my mind is then engaged on one track and I can kind of like, I guess, sort of sink below the surface and kind of simultaneously above the surface and be in that kind of that sweet spot. And, and I find that sometimes when I practice some of the, even transcendental meditation or mindfulness, sometimes my monkey mind kind of comes in and then I don't feel as rested or in a way as mindful as after I've been doing self-hypnosis. <laughs> I would love for you to give us a small demo of hypnosis if you're okay with that. Yes, I am. Maybe a few seconds of that. <laughs> I, I should have thought of something. I sometimes actually like to do that. And I should have thought of something special just for your audience, but I'm sure I will in the next, you know, 10 seconds. I'll think of something, but I will just say to any listeners, if anyone is listening to this and you're driving or you're out in public, maybe, you know, give this a listen, but don't practice it until later when you're in the safety and quiet of your own home and and you know don't operate in he- heavy machinery while listening to this podcast <laughs> because we want to make sure to be safe and and to create a safe environment if people are ready and they want to either again you know walk through this with us or just use it kind of as a template and you can practice it yourself later so maybe just Letting your eyes just close and just noticing just maybe the sound of my voice or even some of the sound of your own breath or the background sounds and just allowing yourself to be. Just allowing yourself to know that you're in control, you're in the driver's seat, so that you're free to experience only what's comfortable and right for you. And just noticing your feet, your left and your right, how they're supported. And then just noticing the space in between. It's interesting how that space 
connects the left foot and the right foot. How something that's not there can be there and can be so important. Focusing your attention on the left, left foot. Noticing any sensations there. Groundedness of it. Perhaps the lightness of it. And now shifting your attention to the right, to that right foot. Noticing the groundedness of it. the lightness of it. And as you shift back again to the left, notice the space in between, the space that connects the left and the right. And as you shift back to the right, Perhaps also noticing the connection between the heaviness, the groundedness of that foot, and the lightness of the air around it. And as you move back and forth between the left and the right, the right and the left, between the space in between and the solidness, the groundedness of those feet, you might also notice how that movement back and forth is actually quite similar to the movement between being awake and asleep asleep and awake. How there are these solid states of awakeness and asleepness. And they're so close to one another and connected. And you might find that tonight As you're preparing to go to sleep, getting ready for bed, or perhaps in bed, closing your eyes, conscious mind or unconscious mind might remember this. And know that you have the freedom to move as effortlessly from awake to asleep as you did between the left and the right. And if you were to focus on the left foot and the right foot, practicing this practice, you might also find that before you know it, you become more relaxed and move into a sleep that's restful. And when you awaken, 
in the morning that it's easy to move from asleep to awake and alert. And so now you have a little tool that you can use whenever you wish, supporting you in whatever way is safe and healthy and supportive of you. And so now you can open your eyes if you've had them closed, wide awake and alert, feeling refreshed and knowing that you have a new tool that you can use whenever you wish. Awake and alert. So how was that? <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much for the demo. Yeah, I think that was about five, maybe five minutes. Something five minutes. like that. Something so I quick. have a follow-up question. Yeah. On to my curious mind, it seems that this is very similar to a guided meditation. What would you say? Is there any similarity or a difference? It is similar. And, you know, I, I always think of it. So I, you know, I, I kind of just design that on the spot, something that would be general enough that it, it seems like it would be really safe and for mm -hmm. the listeners and easy to use. So it is a little bit closer in, in many ways to a guided uh, meditation than, for example, if someone were to purchase my self-hypnosis for sleep packages, those are, are, are certainly a little bit different and much more extensive and have different kinds of hypnotic suggestions embedded or that I'm teaching people how to use because, of course, then people are, are setting an intention to get to, to do self-hypnosis in a different way. And, and also, I thought that it might be interesting to incorporate some principles of mindfulness into this mm -hmm. because, because of you and your audience. So this is kind of a little more, this is kind of similar to a, a guided meditation. But that being said, pure meditation, I would say, is really about a state of at-oneness and a state of just being. Whereas, you know, in, in kind of its purest form, whereas hypnosis and self-hypnosis in their kind of purest form are really about having a treatment goal and, and an intention. So the suggestions and the design of something is really to follow that treatment goal. So that's what takes it a little bit more out of the realm of just pure meditation and into the realm of hypnosis or self-hypnosis. And so here there was a little bit of a goal, mm -hmm. right? Which was, I think, partly to give people a pleasant and safe experience. And also my goal was kind of to incorporate some principles of mindfulness, but also to focus a little bit on how people could use this for sleep. So there was a little bit of a goal. It wasn't just like a guided, pleasant experience, sort of at, you know, an ocean, you know, sanctuary metaphor, which, which would have an intention also, but this was sort of a little bit incorporating into something that people could use specifically for sleep, because I'm assuming that some of the people who are maybe listening to this are interested in both hypnosis and maybe also in helping with insomnia and sleep issues. If somebody doesn't have any chronic illness or any, any other illness or any sleep issue or no insomnia, can they still use hypnosis for any therapeutic treatment? For sure. I've had people come to me for 
hypnosis. And when I've asked them what they would like to have happen, they have just said they feel like they they're maybe they're happy, even happy in their lives. It's not like they're they struggle with anxiety or depression or anything like that, but that they feel like they haven't reached their potential for happiness. And they feel like they would like to be happier. They would like to live to their potential. They'd like to live more fully. They'd like to feel more relaxed or more rested. Or they just simply want to have an experience of something. They want to know what that feels like. So hypnosis, it's an interesting, you know, it is an altered state. So I think people seek altered states for all kinds of reasons, including recreationally. So I think sometimes I've had people come to me and want to learn self-hypnosis so that they can have more mastery over that. Now, I would love to ask you about one of your Twitter posts. If you, if you want to improve your memory, you can start by improving your sleep. And this was a retweet from Ariana Huffington. And in our yes. offline conversation, you mentioned that you are friends with Ariana Huffington. So could you describe about this article? If you want to improve your memory, you can start by improving your sleep. Well, I, I think that, you know, Ariane Huffington, I, wouldn't, I don't know that I would say quite that we're friends, but we are definitely friendly. And she has been such a, a great source of support. She's been so kind in supporting my work and making me a contributor to Thrive Global, which is her wellness site. And I know she particularly liked that, that article on sleep and memory. And I think part of it is, is because when, what researchers have found is, is that when we sleep, we take in the information that we have retrieved during the day. And a lot of important things happen. So we essentially, in a way, like we move that information around to different parts of our brain when we're sleeping. And in a way, we kind of file it away. It's said that we consolidate it. So when we wake up, then we, we go and we retrieve those files. We recall, we remember, right, that, those pieces of information. And so when you don't get good quality sleep, that filing system doesn't really work as well. So there are a lot of really important things that happen in terms of cognition and memory and how we process information, you know, when we're sleeping. So it's really important to get good quality sleep because, of course, the more good quality sleep we have, the, the more efficient that filing system is. In, in our conversation earlier, you mentioned about your core values. And I want to ask you, what are your core values? <laughs> I should have known that when we talked about that, that you might bring that up, actually. You know, I had an interesting experience many years ago. So my original training, my original career was actually as an artist. I, was, I have a degree in design from Rhode Island School of Design. So I was a fashion designer. And then I worked a little bit in the industry. And I was very unhappy I was driven to do it, but I, I just wasn't happy and I couldn't quite figure out why. And then I had this, this I was taking this, actually it was a career counseling class and they, they had us look at our core values and in terms of figuring out what careers we wanted to pursue. And I had at that time had been working as a designer. I also had a catering business and then I 
was working part-time in my stepfather's holistic medical practice. And I really enjoyed working with him in that practice. I thought just because I enjoyed working with him, I didn't really realize that it was because that was a better career choice for me. So when I took this class, they asked us to go through all those lists of core values and pick out our top 10 and then pare it down to our top three and then pare it down to our top number one and number two. And for me, that was, I made, I made one of them up and it was actually spiritual integrity, which I kind of have since thought is really about like identifying somebody's kind of, I don't know, soul purpose, like what, what drives their soul and, and creating cohesiveness in their life, like integrity in their life with regards to that. And then the other is compassion. And so I'm not saying that fashion design doesn't have that, but for me, I think it, it, it isn't my driving force. And so I was doing something that I loved, which was design, but I, it didn't, I mean, it wasn't really functioning in a cohesive way, sort of internally, spiritually for me. So when I realized that, I realized that working with patients and, and working as a healer and teaching people how to heal themselves, that for me has that spiritual integrity and compassion. So that's, that's how I pursue my work. And that's what I hope to support people in doing for themselves. What is your driving force? What drives you to do the kind of work you're doing? I, I think it's just that. It's, it, is, it is spiritual integrity. Is I feel like this is what I am meant to do. I love hypnosis. I mean, I just love it. I think about it all the time. I think about perception and how, I mean, I think this is where the art maybe comes in is art is so much about perception. And I, when I design hypnosis, it's really about having a sense of the nuances of language and the pauses in between words and how you can, you can shift your own perception and other people's perceptions by shifting the words, shifting the rhythm of the words, um, thinking about the nuances of things and, and keeping the integrity of language and the meaning. So for example, when I sometimes work with, you know, I work, I worked a lot with people who have health issues. And so for example, one of my kind of pet peeves is, Sometimes I'll get people who have health <laughs> issues and they'll like particularly cancer patients. And when I ask them what they'd like to have happen, they say they, they want to keep a positive attitude. And, and I'm always like, oh, that's so confusing for the unconscious because a positive attitude is really about being optimistic and hopeful, which of course is what you want. But on, I always say to people, uh, the only time you ever want a positive blood test or biopsy, it, you know, the only time you ever want something medical to be positive is if you want to get pregnant. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you want a negative blood test, you want a negative biopsy. So when we say, when, some, when a cancer patient says they want a positive outlook, I think, well, the unconscious has to do a lot of work there. And so when I say integrity, I don't just mean in terms of like as a value, I also mean in terms of the value of a meaning of something. So I'm really mindful about what words I use and how people can learn 
about some of the nuances of the messages they give themselves. You mentioned about the rhythm, changing mm-hmm. the rhythm of words. Could you give us an example how to change the rhythm of words? Yeah, well, for example, in the little the little sampling, the little example that 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 I gave a few minutes ago of you know, sort of a guided meditation mm-hmm. slash, you know, quasi self-hypnosis, you and the listeners will probably notice that I slowed down my words. I took some deliberate pauses for the space to just breathe. And to and and then when we were when we were wrapping that up, my tone and my words became a little bit quicker and louder and more energetic. And so you know that's really kind of basic attunement, right? When mm-hmm. you're you're you can you can tell when someone's really enthusiastic about something and they're really passionate about something, they might talk with a little more energy in their voice and they might speak a little more quickly, <laughs> right? <laughs> and versus like you know. When you're getting a little, you're wanting to relax, you're going to slow things down It's a about bit. changing your physiology. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And your, you know, your, your brain waves, actually, as I was speaking about before, you know, a lot of forms of meditation utilize alpha brain waves, which are slower than our normal, like, you know, regular you and I just talking here. But as we slow down the brain waves, we begin to relax a little more. Well, as you continue to slow those down and you move into something like, you know, a deeper, slower wave, like theta brain waves, you're actually moving into a slower, you know, a, a slower, it's a slower brain wave. So I think the voice is another way that we do that and the way that we think about things. And of course, you know, slower, more rhythmic breathing helps with that. When I mentioned before about, you know, breathing in for a count of four and out for a count of eight. That's because as we breathe in, we're actually speeding up the heart muscle. And as we, you know, breathe out, we're actually slowing it down. That's what heart rate variability is, right? So you want to have a little more of that more relaxed slowing down than that speeding up. I personally take a lot of five, 10 minutes walk every day, Mm -hmm. a lot of walk. So today, it happened today that one guy in my neighborhood told me, I see you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I replied, I take a lot of walks. Right. Yeah. And it makes a difference, doesn't it? It, it kind of, doesn't it kind of reset your rhythm when you do that? It does. It does make huge difference. Yeah, I love that. And I want to ask you about the books, because I asked this question about books to almost all of my guests. What books have you gifted the most? Oh, that's a great question. What books have I gifted the most? My probably my favorite book on hypnosis is My Voice Will Go With You, Teaching Tales of Milton Erickson. And it is edited by Sid Rosen, R-O-S-E-N. And it is little three-page, five-page, two-page vignettes of little stories that Erickson told in, in working with his patients. And, and then Sid Rosen breaks them down and explains why they were effective in treating a variety of different conditions. And it's, it's amazing stories. So I, I have gifted that book a lot because it is something that's fascinating to people who are in the field, but also 
it's something that everybody, you know, people, whether they, you know, are, are therapists or meditation practitioners or anything, everybody seems to get something out of it and find it fascinating. And it's really easy to read and you can pick it up and put it down. And it's, it's, it's really accessible. So I love that book and I've given it away a lot. And then also actually, and this one is a little more obscure because it's out of print, but I think you can still probably get it maybe on, I don't know, you can probably still get it somewhere. And it's called A Mantis Carol by Lawrence Vanderpost. And it's this very amazing story about, he was a, he was a psychologist in Switzerland, I think. And somebody came to him with a dream about a praying mantis, actually. And she had never seen a praying mantis, didn't know what it was, and didn't know why she had had this strange dream. And she was going all over the world trying to understand what it was telling her. And, and it started them kind of on this journey about like the archetypes, types, the symbols of the unconscious. It's kind of a fascinating one, but it's a little bit obscure. And I like, and I, and I found it because my son was like really into bugs and particularly into praying mantises. <laughs> so I had an interest in that symbol. Have you taught hypnosis to your son? I have actually taught my hypnosis to, well, I mean, I don't know that he could, I haven't taught it to him the way I've taught it to other practitioners because I've, I'm a, I've taught a lot of hypnosis to professionals, but I have made him many a hypnosis recording. My son is 22 and he, I will say he knows much more than the average person about the ins and outs of hypnotic language. <laughs> so sometimes when I, you know, to ask him to do something, he's like, I see what you're doing. You're trying to hypnotize me. I'm like, I'm really not. I'm just. That's a myth. I'm actually just asking you to (laughs) to take vitamins if you're not feeling well. I'm actually not trying to hypnotize you to do it. (laughs) Because when people hear about hypnosis, they they keep thinking about those stage magic. That something is going to happen and you are going somewhere else, which is a myth. Right. Actually. And Diane, I want to ask you about your morning routine. What do you do? in the first 60 to 90 minutes when you wake up? The first 60 to 90 minutes. That's, I mean, I, I actually, I get ready for work pretty quickly. So I, I, by 90 minutes, I'm, you know, unless it's like a weekend or a day where I'm just writing, I'm usually actually kind of to, you know, to work by then, by 90 minutes in. But when I get up, I, the first thing I do is feed my cats. <laughs> I, I usually do try to do a little bit of, some kind of meditation. Sometimes I do transcendental meditation. Sometimes I do a little quick self-hypnosis, but like short, like a, you know, 60 seconds or you know, three minutes, usually not more than that in the early mornings. And I always drink quite a bit of water and I actually make my own almond milk and so I, I, I really like doing that because I like to feel like I'm nourishing myself in something that I feel like is healthy for my body and also that I have, have created for myself that is about self-care so that I know like that sort of the first thing that I'm putting into my body is a fuel that I've, I've had a hand, I guess, in, 
in creating in terms of how I nourish myself. So it's just sort of, I know it's a funny little thing, but it's kind of a part of my routine in how I give myself the message of self-care. So that's kind of meaningful. Um, I wanted to ask you about how do you prepare your almond milk, but we don't have time for this conversation. <laughs> I'll send you so the maybe recipe. We can, <laughs> yeah, if you can send the recipe, I can put it in the show notes. <laughs> All right, I will. Actually, it's kind of my own little recipe. So uh, yes, I will. <laughs> but then, then the listeners, you and the listeners are going to have to let me know if you like it or if you, you've come up with some you know. variations. <laughs> Where would you like our listeners to learn about you and your work? You know, I have I have a website which is just drdiane.com. So it's D-R-D-Y-A-N.com. And I have a lot of resources on that website. I, I put out a lot of blogs and I have a whole bunch of videos people can watch and information about hypnosis, including actually a page which is all about the truths about hypnosis which goes through some of the things like what you were talking about with stage hypnosis and what hypnosis is and isn't. And, and so I would welcome people looking at that. And also, you know, I'm on social media and, and on Instagram and YouTube. So my Instagram is just Dr. Diane HJ and the D-Y-A-N. D-Y-A-N is how I spell my Diane. But also actually the number one thing that I would suggest to people is, is and I know you can put this link in the show notes mm -hmm. um, as well, but it's just selfhypnosisforhealing.com. And if people go to that or go to my website, they'll find a link to a free video and ebook that is called The Three Biggest Things That Cause Sleep Problems and The One Thing You Can Do by 3 p.m. Today to Sleep Better. And um, I really would recommend people download that because there are some really important sleep tips in that in terms of both sleep hygiene and also you know times of day to really best tap into your circadian rhythm and i think when people understand how to do that it can be so beneficial to them and then also if they do download that there's also information in like the email that they'll get so that they can actually if they do want to purchase my online self-hypnosis for sleep, they can actually do it at a discount. So that's what I would recommend to people. And then they, they, they also you know, can get my newsletter through that if they are interested in getting blogs and things like that. I don't give out people's information ever. So something that they can, if they like it, they can keep getting it or they can unsubscribe at any time. So I think that's a good way to get resources and to find me. To conclude our conversation, I would like to say one quote from your Instagram profile because you have so many quotes on your Instagram profile. <laughs> and the quote is from, it is a Zen proverb, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. So Diane, Dr. Diane, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g.me You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. 
there is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Okay.